Good morning and welcome to Inside Four Walls. I'm your host, James Madison, and welcome to the show. Today we'll be going over a study that came out of Harvard and has been printed all across various medical outlets. But we'll be reading from perhaps the most, I don't know, credible? I really don't have much faith in the NIH. But the NIH published this Harvard paper, gave it two thumbs up, and said this is accurate as hell. But you will not see this Harvard study that has been signed off and approved by, you know, the National Institute of Health, a government body, published anywhere else. You will not see it talked about on mainstream media, outside of maybe Fox News with Tucker Carlson or something like that. But you will not see Joe Biden or any of them address it. Now, if somebody questions Jen Psaki, Jen Pasaki on it, then you might get some sort of throwaway circle back response. But today we'll be reading <clears throat> Increases in COVID-19 are unrelated to levels of vaccination across 68 countries and 2947 counties in the United States. That being said, welcome to the 8 o'clock upload. Without any further ado, let's get right into it. So again, this article, increases in COVID-19 are unrelated to levels of vaccination across 68 countries and 2,947 counties in the United States. This has also been published in the United States National Library of Medicine and National Institutes of Health as well as having multiple sign-offs from various other people, including Natural Health Alliance, and many, many more. Perhaps I will, because this article will mention it, I personally found this through Jimmy Dore. He did quite a good segment on it, and I thought it would be very fitting to read about it here. It also has gone through the CDC, excuse me, as well. This particular article is written by Earl J. Epidemol. I'm sure I did not say that last name right. My apologies. So, let's get into it. Vaccines currently are the primary mitigation strategy to combat COVID-19 around the world. For instance, the narrative related to the ongoing surge of new cases in the United States is argued to be driven by areas with low vaccination rates. A similar narrative also has been observed in countries such as Germany and the United Kingdom. At the same time, Israel was hailed for its swift and high rates of vaccinations, has seen a substantial resurgence of COVID-19 cases. Yes, this is something that you regular listeners of the show will remember we covered little over two months ago now on the show where Israel was the most vaccinated population on the planet and then they were hit the hardest by COVID that prompted them to do a study a study that we covered very in depth on this show where they talked about how people the strongest immunity to COVID-19 are people who already had COVID-19 they state without any doubt or question that natural immunity is far more effective than the vaccine. And they cite many reasons for that. One being the vaccine degrades in your body over time, meaning it becomes ineffective rapidly. 
you have three to four months tops before you need a booster. That's why just in this year alone, we went from having one shot to two shots to now three shots. And when you look at we're in the nine months, well, January to here, well, I'm about being the 10th month, but yeah, no, we are in the 10th month now. So it checks out too. You have three to four months uh, before your vaccine needs to be re-upped. But the Israel studies show that the two pe- the two groups of people with the most immunity against COVID-19 were people who had already had COVID-19 with a natural immunity, excuse me, or people who had had COVID and one shot of the vaccine. And they said the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, but perhaps we'll do another episode where we go into the massive recall on that. <clears throat> now let's continue. At the, to- at the same time, Israel was hailed for its swift and high rates of vaccination, has also seen a substantial resurgence in COVID-19 cases. We investigate the relationship between the percentage of population fully vaccinated and new COVID-19 cases across 68 countries and across 2,947 counties in the U.S. The methods used. We use COVID-19 data provided by the R World in data for cross-country analysis available as of September 3rd, 2021. Supplementary Table 1. They have, I'll link this article in the comments and you can click through all the little tiny, um, they, they they link to what the supplementary table would be. It'd be a large collection of data that you can read through, but it's not wholly important for understanding this article. It's important, but you can read this article and get all the information you need from it too. But for those who are more academically inclined, I think you should go looking through it. Okay, back to the article. September 3rd, 2021. We included 68 countries that met the following criteria. Criteria had second dose vaccine data available, had COVID-19 cases data available, had a population data available, and the last update of data was within three days prior to or on September 3rd, 2021 and no later. For the seven days preceding September 3rd, 2021, we computed the COVID-19 cases per 1 million people for each country, as well as the percentages of population that are fully vaccinated. The country-level analysis in the, in the U.S., we utilized the White House COVID-19 team data, available as September 2nd, 2021. We excluded countries that did not report fully vaccinated population percentages data yielding two. I'm sorry, let me reread that. We excluded counties that did not fully vaccinate the population percentages data yielding 2,947 counties for the analysis. We computed the number and percentages of these counties that experienced an increase in COVID-19 cases by level and percentages of people fully vaccinated in each county. 
the percentage increased in COVID-19 cases was calculated based on the differences in cases from the last seven days and the last seven days preceding them. For example, Los Angeles County in California had 18,171 cases in the last seven days, August 26th all the way up to September 1st, and 31,616 cases in the previous seven days, August 19th to the 25th. So, this county did not experience an increase in cases in our data set. We provided a dashboard of the metrics used in the analysis that is updated automatically as new data is made available by the White House COVID-19 team. The findings. At the country level, that appears to be no discernible relationship between percentages of population fully vaccinated and new COVID-19 cases in the last seven days. In fact, the trend line suggests marginally positive associations, <clears throat> association such that countries with higher percentages of population vaccinated have higher COVID-19 cases per million. That means per million of fully vaccinated, let me make sure I'm reading this right, yes, countries, countries with the most vaccinated people have the highest outbreak of COVID-19 currently underway right now. And I'll read that for you so you know I'm not misconstruing anything. Let me go back up a little bit. In fact, the trend line suggests a marginally positive association such that countries with higher percentages of population fully vaccinated have higher COVID-19 cases per million people. Notably, Israel, with over 60% of their population fully vaccinated, having the highest COVID outbreak cases per 1 million people in the last 7 days. But the vaccine works, right? It keeps you safe, but wear the mask. The lack of a meaningful association between percentages of population fully vaccinated and new COVID cases is further exemplified for instance, by comparison, by comparison of Iceland and Portugal, both countries have over 75% of their population fully vaccinated and have more COVID-19 cases per 1 million people than countries such as Vietnam and South Africa, which have only around 10% of their population fully vaccinated. Are you getting it now? Places with more people vaccinated are having more severe COVID outbreak as opposed to those people, those countries with the lower amount of people vaccinated that are seeing far less COVID-19 spread. Hmm. It's almost like these vaccines turn you into a super spreader. But this shouldn't be news to anyone who's been following the story, not just this podcast. Studies have been pouring out from all these established media outlets, but none of them are actually looking at these research documents coming out of places like Harvard. 
the NIH, Israel, or other national institutes of health, such as the Cambridge Institute of Health, which have long since stated everything the NIH is just now talking about. This is old news. This is a new research that just confirms old news that I have reported on on this podcast in the past. Across the U.S. counties, too, the median of new COVID cases per 100,000 people in the last seven days is largely similar across the categories of present population fully vaccinated. Excuse me. Notably, there is also substantial county variation in new COVID-19 cases within categories of percentages population fully vaccinated. There are there also appears to be no significant signaling of COVID-19 cases decreasing with higher percentages of population fully vaccinated. Again, there also appears to be no significant signaling of COVID-19 cases decreasing with higher percentages of population fully vaccinated. Meaning all these places with more people vaccinated are not showing any changes of people who go to the hospital and are testing positive. But that's not stopping a government from trying to rule by decree that everyone needs to be vaccinated. Back to the article. Of the top five countries that have the highest percentages of populations fully vaccinated, 99 and 84.3%, the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, identifies four of them as high transmission countries. And also, these high transmission counties, uh, Chattahoochee, Georgia, McKinley, New Mexico, uh, Acebo, Puerto Rico. Countries have about 90% of their population fully vaccinated, with all three being classified as high transmission. Conversely, of 57 countries that have been classified as low transmission countries by the CDC, 26.3% have percentages of populations fully vaccinated below 20%. Since full immunity from the vaccine is believed to take about two weeks after the second dose, we concluded sensitivity uh, analyses by using a one-month lag on the percentage of population fully vaccinated for countries and U.S. counties. The above findings of no discernible association between COVID-19 cases and level of fully fully vaccinated was also observed when we considered a one-month lag on the levels of fully vaccinated people. We should note that the CDC case data is of confirmed cases, which is functioning of both supply and demand e.g. variation in testing capacities or reporting practices, and variation in people's decision to go get tested. And the interpretation is now what we move on to. The sole reliance 
on vaccination as a primary strategy to mitigate COVID-19 and its adverse consequences needs to be re-examined, especially considering the Delta B1617-2 variant. Uh, B1617-2 is its designation in the Catalog of Infectious Diseases in the CDC. <clears throat> and, okay, I'll just reread this so, you know, context is all here. Needs to be re-examined, especially considering the Delta B1617-2 variant and the likelihood of future variants and other pharmacological and non-pharmacological interventions may need to be put in place alongside increasing vaccination rates. This is where the CDC's and the NIH is talking, isn't it? Because literally, everything we just read before says the vaccine is making no difference, and now they're saying people need to go get vaccinated even more so. If the vaccines are not making any notable difference and the places that have in the counties that have the highest, as I said earlier, uh, Ketahoochee, McKinley, and Isrobo all have far above 90%. In fact, it was 90 to 99% of its population were vaccinated, but these are the three super spreader hotspots of COVID-19 recognized by the CDC and the WHO as well as the NIH. Yet, with them having nearly 100% of their population vaccinated, they are having the most hospitalizations and severe consequences of COVID-19 right now. And where the CDC is going over this Harvard study, that this all came from a Harvard study, mind you. All the data we read is from the Harvard study. The CDC is writing about that. But my question is, if this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, then why, oh, why are all the countries in the world and all the counties in the U.S. that have the highest percentage of vaccination rates seeing the biggest surge in COVID-19 and hospitalizations from COVID-19 right now? Because I'm telling you right now, if the rates of vaccination are in the high 90s in these places, yet they're still seeing people hospitalized from severe COVID, not just COVID-19, but severe COVID, then why should anybody go get vaccinated? Again, let me put on my Tim Pool beanie here. I'm not Viva Fry. I don't have a full fucking mask to put on for you. That's funny as that was. Did you see that? It's hilarious. You need to talk to your medical professional and make sure you are getting a medical opinion not a political opinion. And there's certain key phrases you need to look out for when your doctor prescribes you anything, especially something like the COVID vaccine. Because we've seen, it, it's unfortunate, but this pandemic was heavily politicized. The former president did everything he could to keep America as safe as possible. I disagree with a large number of the precautions Trump took. But the fact that Trump did anything sparked so many media outlets to either play hardcore defense of his actions or hardcore demonization of, his, of him. 
and the vaccine was used as a political tool in the elections. Right? Trump was talking about how, oh, I'm getting this vaccine. Now, this vaccine is going to be done. It's going to be great. It's out there. Everybody should go get it. And then when Biden, Kamala Harris, and these other people were running for office, they're like, we do not trust any vaccine made by made by or under this administration. We will never take it. And yet the same people saying all that about the vaccine and how they would never take it are now the ones demanding that you take the vaccine. This has been disgustingly politicized. And I really don't know where we go from here. In the same report where the CDC and the WHO and the NIH have all confirmed that vaccines have not made any difference and the studies show that it could have actually made getting made the COVID made COVID spread even worse than it was prior to getting vaccinated in these places. Yet after all that reading and all that study and everything the CDC has just said, or the NIH in this case has just said, they are now saying we need to increase the rates of vaccinations. But, but why? If there is no visible difference and it shows no signs of making any improvement, then why in God's green name would we want to take it? I'm not vaccinated. I'm currently getting ready to leave my the current job I have right now over a vaccine mandate. And I'm happy to say that in solidarity people who are unvaccinated, I have two co-workers who are actively resigning and leaving because they do not support the mandate, despite them being fully vaccinated. Uh... And I think employers right now, especially right now, that are demanding their employees be vaccinated or quit are pathetic pussies. There hasn't been no executive order signed demanding people with 100 staff or more be vaccinated. There has been no executive order signed. There also has been no judicial or OSHA regulations put through making people or compelling places to force their employees to get vaccinated. You have a president who made a statement and a bunch of clueless bosses and CEOs are just going with it. Granted, I'm sure there's a lot of bosses and CEOs and owners of, of businesses and establishments that have always wanted their, that have wanted their employees to all be vaccinated. that are using this as an excuse and purposely misunderstanding what Biden was saying. Yes, Biden said that. If you if you don't have people with a uh, hundred people working in your business, you have to be vaccinated. But there has been no motion to make it actually legal. There has been no executive order. There has been no litigation. There has been no OSHA rule written about it yet. In fact, OSHA has actively pushed back on it, and so has Nancy Pelosi. Go figure. This is an excuse to be ruling by decree. Yet, again, all these places that have 90 to 99% vaccination rates are also the biggest hotbed of COVID currently post-vaccination. Do what you think is right for you, but I do not lose the vaccine is right for anyone at all. And uh, I have another article to read for you guys after we get done with this one. It's, well, uh, we'll, we'll get to it. 
But let's finish up this article real quick together, all right? Other pharmacological and non-pharmacological interventions may need to be put in place alongside increasing vaccination rates. Why? Such course correction, especially with regards to the policy narrative, becomes paramount with emerging scientific evidence on real-world effectiveness of the vaccines. For instance, in a report released from the Ministry of Health in Israel, effectiveness of two doses of the, well, it's the BioNTech vaccine, but they have in here is BNT162B2. Well, they do put in a next to it, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Against protecting or against preventing COVID-19 infections was reported to be 39%, substantially lower than the trial efficiency of 96%. It is also emerging that immunity derived from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine may not be as strong as immunity acquired through recovery from the COVID-19 virus. And what they're saying here, is what I said earlier. Natural immunity is far stronger than the vaccine. Being vaccinated against it only provides you, if I remember correctly, it was 10% the protection that natural immunity does. And there's been many reports that talk about how the vaccine may actually compromise your immune system. But this episode is far from over. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine may not be as strong as immunity acquired through recovery from COVID-19, meaning antibodies in your system. A substantial decline in immunity from the mRNA vaccine six months post-immunization has also been reported. Even though... Vaccinations offer offers protection to individuals against severe hospitalization and death. The CDC reported an increase from 0.01% to 9% and 0 to 15.1% between January to May 2021 in rates of hospitalizations and death, respectively, among the fully vaccinated. Yeah. Yes, people who are fully vaccinated are experiencing far worse cases of COVID-19 than people who were not vaccinated. And of this group, more of the people who are vaccinated are dying from COVID-19 symptoms. This is something that was reported on months ago. But anybody who talked about it was deplatformed. Anyone with any sizable following, I should say, was deplatformed. Steven Crowder, for example, got multiple strikes for actually going over the study we just read a little bit of. Not this specific study, but the study where they proved that the, the CDC reported an increase from 0.01% to 9% and 0 to 15% between January to May 2021 in the rates of vaccinated people hospitalized and dying, though respectively among the fully vaccinated exclusively. People were giving strikes and taken down because they read into the study that's now in this, well, specifically in this quote here. It, it, you have to start wondering 
is there a bigger agenda going on behind the scenes? I do not have these answers for you. Though I would fully understand where people would come off thinking there is. <laughs> In summary, even as efforts should be made to encourage the population to get vaccinated, it should be done with some humility and respect. Stigmatizing populations can do more harm than good. Importantly, other non-pharmacological prevention efforts, e.g. the importance of basic public health hygiene with regards to maintaining safe distances or hand-washing, promoting better, frequent, and cheaper forms of testing, need to be renewed in order to strike the balance of learning to live with COVID-19 in the same manner we continue to live a hundred years later with various seasonal alterations of the 1918 influenza virus. So, that brings us to the end of this very specific part of today's episode. And I'm willing to bet that it's a pretty safe bet that you're not going to see the U.S. government follow the science. Yet, much like the people who put masks on their children, they will claim that they're just following the science. And a little personal anecdotal thing here for me. Whenever I see somebody with their kid masked up, I always make a point to remind them or to point out that both the CDC and the WHO, as well as Fauci himself, have said children should not be masked up. And let me tell you, I get all kinds of responses. Of the few dozen times I've done this, I've mainly had one person ask me to prove it to them. And I'll be like, I will not pull up my phone right now, but I will give you, you know, search terms you should look into to read more about it. And this person did, and I ran to them later on in the store, and their child was not wearing a mask. One life saved, right? But I do get various things from uh, parents telling me I should mind my own business. And when a parent with their kid all masked up tells me to mind my own business, it is like me watch. It's like, let's say, and, and you can say this is not comparable. I think it's fully comparable. I'm in a store and I see a dad just punching his kid repeatedly in the face. And I say, hey, that's not very healthy for the kid. And the dad says, mind your own business. Well, I'm here watching you abuse your child. If I have to sit here and see this uncomfortable scene of child abuse, it's now my business. And I will step up and say something. You know, you, this, I'm also somebody that when I see a super obese child begging his mom for McDonald's, I will actively say that's probably not the best idea kid is it mean yes but is it out of a place of concern for that child's health absolutely but as i was saying you will not see this government follow the science if anything well i mean it boils down to the old adage i believe this is a quote from hillary clinton herself never let a good crisis go to waste and the very same people that will ride you and harp on about how you're not the one following the science because you're the one who's already had the COVID-19. You've already beaten it, so you're not wearing a mask and you're not getting vaccinated. Because why would you jeopardize your health 
when you already have something that is proven without a doubt to be scientifically and medically far more protective against the vaccine against the COVID because you have natural immunity. You are following the science better than the people who are masked up right now. And let me tell you, most of the people out there wearing masks currently are people who are double vaccinated. On some level, I have to believe that they do not believe the vir- the vaccine is helping them. Because if you really believe the vaccine is helping you, then why are you masked up? Why are you double and sometimes triple masked? But that being said, I have one more article I want to read for you. And then I want to end today's episode with a, well, for me, a video, but for you, audio of a doctor speaking up against what's going on right now. Not necessarily saying you shouldn't be vaccinated, but going over the fact that some 90 to 95% of vaccinations given out are given out incorrectly. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory, but I would do everything in my power. It's like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. No. Wouldn't demand it. Here's Nancy Pelosi. So here's the thing. We are we cannot require someone to be vaccinated. That's just not what we can do. It is a matter of privacy to know who is or who isn't. And do you foresee that the vaccine might be mandated for any populations, perhaps for um, school-age children? No, I don't think you'll ever see a mandating of vaccine, particularly for the general public. Sometimes in the health sector, like in my hospital here at NIH, uh, you're not going to be allowed to go on the ward unless you get a flu vaccine. But you would never mandate, at least I do not think you would. Uh, I'd be pretty uh, surprised if you mandated it for any element of the general public. Now, as a primary care physician myself, who's had many conversations around vaccine safety with patients, I'm curious, what what's our contingency plan for people who might refuse the vaccine? Well, I mean, they have every right to refuse vaccine. I don't think you need a contingency plan. If someone... Well, well... What we would do with this contingency plan is we would fucking fire them, and how dare they not get vaccinated? The contingency, and what's funny is that was Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Dr. Fauci all saying that there would be no mandate, none whatsoever. Every one of those clips was from the month of August of 2020. Nancy Pelosi, and we've played the Nancy Pelosi clip on this show multiple times where she has said we don't believe we we don't have the ability it's not in our purview or our ability to make a vaccine mandate joe biden said the same thing he said we can't make a vaccine mandate and dr fauci said there is no reason or means in which you should do one now all three of these people have come out and said well except for Nancy Pelosi, really enough but dr fauci and biden have all come out and said multiple times oh you need to get vaccinated or else and they're all ch- ch- saying a different tune in the past. And again, in the past, they're also saying we will never take the Trump vaccine. Now they're forcing people to take the Trump vaccine. Go figure. And yes, some people are like, I hate that you call it the Trump vaccine. Operation Warp Speed was his. He himself takes credit for the vaccine all the time. If the big man himself will take the vaccine, will, will take credit for making the vaccine, I can call it the Trump vaccine.
But let's move on to the next article. But let's pull it back a little. When you say COVID vaccine, people will automatically assume you're talking about shots and injections. But what if I told you that there's an alternative? A different path. No, I'm not talking about ivermectin. No, I'm not talking about hydroxychloroquine. I am talking about a new capsule out there. A a new anti-COVID capsule. Like Merck's new experimental pill to treat COVID-19. Cuts risk of hospitalization and death in half. The pharmaceutical company reports. The clinical trial is being stopped early. The drug maker plans to apply for emergency authorization as soon as possible. This isn't the full article we'll be reading. We'll just be reading part of it. There is a more important article we need to read on this. The United States, in this article, by the way, is in the Washington Post, and it's by Carolyn Y. Johnson. The United States moved a major step closer Friday to having an easy-to-take pill to treat COVID-19 available in the nation's medicine cabinet. With encouraging results released about the experimental drug, the pharmaceutical giant Merck announced that it has an international clinical trial. Its drug... Molnupiravir. I definitely did not say that right. Reduced the risk of hospitalizations, and had by nearly half among the higher risk people diagnosed with mild or moderate illness. The company said it would seek regulatory approval as soon as possible, meaning the United States could have its first anti-coronavirus pill in a matter of months. It's it's amazing. How worked up and how much shit we got cranked out for a virus with a 99.9% survivability for everybody under the age of 65. It's amazing. An independent board of experts monitoring the trial recommended recommended the Merck study be stopped early because of the positive results, a significant and telling development of the pharmaceutical study. Merck and partner Ridgeback Biotherapeutics Said it in a news said in a news release they would apply for emergency use authorization for the drug. A simple, easy, a simple, easy to prescribe pill that prevents mild and moderate cases of COVID-19, the illness caused by the coronavirus from turning into dire episodes, has been one of the missing pieces of the medical. I'm not going to lie to you, that's a massive word that I'm just going to skip over. To fight the coronavirus, experts cautioned that even if the pill receives a regulatory green light, vaccination will remain the primary tool to fight the coronavirus and preventing the illness. But they celebrate the prospect of a treatment to help transform COVID-19 from a public health crisis into a disease that can be managed if it continues to circulate long term. It won't, though. This is no longer a pandemic. It has officially been recognized on all levels as endemic, meaning this is the new flu. This will come around and it'll be a seasonal thing. 
a pill isn't gonna isn't gonna make that happen any faster, nor will a vaccine. And from what we've already run this episode and other episodes of the show about vaccines, it really makes things worse, if not any different. But, but, this is not the article I'm actually planning on reading for you. This is just to give you a little concept into what we're going into. No, today's actual article, or the last article we'll be reading on today's episode, actually comes from my one of my favorite places, The Guardian. Caption, Merck wants Americans to pay $712 for a COVID drug that taxpayers helped develop. This article is by David Sirota. The drug in question only costs $17.74 to produce. Unfortunately, this type of behavior is widespread in U.S. pharma. Published October 14th, 2021. And I'd like to thank somebody from the comments for bringing this to my attention. Oh, fuck, I don't remember their name. My apologies. I will give you a shout-out and a credit in a future episode. And now, from The Guardian. Merck wants Americans to pay $712 for a COVID drug that taxpayers helped develop. Article by David Sorota. The drug in question only costs $17.74 to produce. Unfortunately, this type of behavior is widespread in U.S. pharma. Published October 14th, 2021. Last week, we learned that Merck is planning to charge Americans 40 times its cost for a COVID drug whose development was subsidized by the American government. The situation spotlights two sets of facts that have gone largely unmentioned in the legislative debate over whether to let Medicare negotiate for lower drug prices. Fact 1. Americans are facing not merely expensive drugs, but prices that are examples of outright profiteering. Fact 2. In many cases, the medicines we are being gouged on are those that we are publicly that we publicly already paid for. These facts show us that pharma bankrolled Democrats trying to kill drug pricing. Measures aren't just bought and paid for in this particular skirmish. They are foot soldiers for the pharmaceutical industry's larger multi-decade campaign to sell off and rig, or sorry, campaign to seal off and rig Americans' alleged free market. First, there's the price point of the drug. It's merely it's not merely that Americans are paying the world's highest price for pharmaceuticals. It's that in many cases we are paying prices that aren't even close to what the consumer in other countries are paying. Meaning that here in America we are paying more for drugs. For the same drug here, we're paying far more than somebody in another country is paying. On top of all that, a lot, of, most drug companies receive some sort of kickback from the government. And all government money, all the money the government has to spend, comes from our tax dollars. Drug companies are charging you 40 times the amount for a drug 
that you already paid for through your tax dollars. <laughs> Again, I'll reread this just for you guys. First, there's the point. Sorry. First, there's the price point of drugs. It's not merely that Americans are paying the world's highest price for drugs and pharmaceuticals. It's that in many cases, we are paying prices that aren't even close to what consumers in other countries pay. The, a new public citizen analysis shows that the top, the 20 top selling medicines generated almost twice as much pharmaceutical industry revenue in the United States as in every other country combined. Sure, compared with other countries, Americans may buy a lot of prescription drugs, but this study reflects something much bigger at play. Pharma sculpted public policies that allowed drug price levels to go beyond profit into profit profiteering. The term profiteering is important here because drug makers aren't losing lots of money in other countries where they sell medicines at far lower prices. Let's remember, pharmaceutical companies aren't altruistic charities that offer their product abroad at a loss. On the contrary, they are still making healthy profits at far lower world market prices. And, as The Intercept's Lee Fang notes, we've read articles from Lee Fang. He's the one who covered all the leaks out of uh, Wuhan over the last year. He's done some good work on that, too. They are making those healthy profits while bolstering an innovation and job growth in countries that have allowed their governments to use bulk purchasing power to negotiate lower prices. The same argument, I'm sorry, the same arrangement could happen in the United States. We could significantly reduce medicine prices, which would save Medicare and individual consumers hundreds of billions of dollars. And in the process, we would do little to significantly reduce pharmaceutical innovation. Indeed, a recent Congressional Budget Office study projected that even if profits on top drugs decreased by a whopping 25%, it would only result in a 0.5 average annual reduction in the number of new drugs entering the market over the next decade. The reason that reduction in new drugs would be so small to get the other inconvenience facts being left out of the conversation in Congress right now. For all the pharmaceutical industry's self-congratulatory rhetoric about its own innovations, the federal government uses your tax dollars to fund a lot of that innovation, research, and development. A study from the National Academy of Sciences, uh, actually I believe they're very government funded in that group, but I'm not sure. Anyway, into the article. Well, the quote here is, all of this underscores how corrupt and insane the current conversation in Congress really is. A study, end quote, a study from the National Academy of Science tells that story. The federal government spent $100 billion to subsidize the research on every single one of the 200 plus drugs approved for sale in the United States between 2010 and 2016. Jesus. 
100 billion to subsidize the research on every single one of the 200 plus drugs approved for sale in the United States between 2010 and 2016. Because we, the public, invested early in these medicines, we reduced the R&D cost for pharmaceutical companies. Therefore, on the back end, the public should have received some sort of return in the form of affordable prices. After all, we took the initial risk and we lowered the overhead cost of the drug. Companies might need to recoup, though, with higher prices. In business terms, the public is the early venture investors in these products, and we deserve a share of the returns when the product proves valuable. However, in the mid-1990s, the business axiom was tossed out of the drug lobbyist persuade. The Clinton administration, sorry, that business axiom was tossed out when drug lobbyists persuaded the Clinton administration to repeal rules that allow federal officers and federal officials to require government-subsidized drugs to be offered to the Americans at a reasonable price. A few, year, a few years later, Congress with then-Senator Joe Biden's help, voted down legislation to resonate these rules, to reinstate these rules. And later, the Obama administration rejected House Democrats' request that federal officers at least provide guidelines to government agencies about how they can exercise their remaining powers to combat drug price gouging. Oh, Obama fought against the people in a way? Huh. I know the Obama administration worked against the American people. Weird. Sarcasm is sarcastic. The result. We now routinely face immoral situations like last week's news that the pharmaceutical giant Merck is planning to charge Americans $712 for a drug that... Co or, sorry. Charge Americans $712 for a COVID drug that only costs $17.74 to produce and whose development was subsidized entirely by the American government, a.k.a. your tax dollars. That's just the latest example of the absurd paradigm. We take the risk of investing early in the product, but instead of that investment reaping us something valuable like affordable prices, we are rewarded with price gouging by the drug makers that bankroll the lawmakers who've rigged the rules and aim to keep them rigged. All of this underscores how corrupt and insane the current conversation in Congress really is. And in truth, it's way more corrupt than it, than it even seems on the surface. We aren't merely watching pharma-bankrolled lawmakers try to stop Medicare from negotiating lower prices for drugs. They are trying to stop the government from negotiating lower prices for medicines that the government already paid for. And again, all of your tax dollars. And that we are being charged the world's highest prices for. This opposition is just the latest crusade to keep the American market 
walled off for maximum manipulation. Laws written by drug lobbyists prohibit wholesales, wholesalers from importing lower-priced medicines from other countries, give drug companies 20-year patents on government-subsidized medicines, preventing the government from requiring reasonable prices for drugs, and government pays for and blocks Medicare from using its bulk purchasing power to negotiate lower prices. That's not a free market. It's a top-down command economy perfectly calibrated for price gouging. And the pharmaceutical industry and its puppets and its puppet politicians want to keep it that way. And again, this article was written by friend of the show, David Sirota. Well, when I say friend of the show, I mean someone I've read a lot of articles from. And now I want to end this episode with a video. I will be playing it in its entirety. It is from Dr. John Campbell. This man, me and him disagree politically on almost everything. He's also been a CNN and Fox contributor in the past. He's very driven by numbers and statistics when it comes to health and safety. And he is actually one of the leading experts on, well, when it comes to political talking pieces, he is one of the leading experts. In this video, I feel like he hits it right out the park, and it's something that more people need to be aware of. That being said, without any further ado, let's get right into this video. Plain now. Well, a warm welcome to this talk. Now, when you've watched this video, I'd like you to write to your MP or your representative in Parliament or something, because I'm just at a loss at what to do about this. And I think it's really important. I'm going to give evidence that we should be aspirating the needle before we give the injections. Basically, I think that most people in the UK and the United States are giving the vaccine injections wrongly. Now, what you should do when you're sticking a needle into a muscle, because it has to be an intramuscular injection, so the needle's not that quite big on the um, not on the vaccine, but you stick it in, then you should hold it like that. And then what I always do is I draw back. And if you draw back, back blood, you know you're in a vessel, so you would pull it out and, and change the needle and get a different site. But that's not being done. Now, if, if that's not done, let me show you what can happen. So this is what can happen. So imagine you're giving the needle, you stick it into the muscle. And for just pure misfortune, you find you end up in a blood vessel. Then when you, so when you draw, so if you draw back and you're in the muscle, then no blood will come out. But if you're in a blood vessel and you draw back and there you go, you know straight away you're in a blood vessel and you know not to inject it because you would then be giving this intravenously. That would be going straight into a vein, not into the muscle where it is supposed to go. So we're doing this wrong. Now I'm going to be giving evidence for this today and this really has to change. So I'm going to give evidence from this paper here. Now, do look at it for yourself. I always post the links, of course. Now, th th this, is, this is the name of the title here, uh, Intravenous Injection of Coronavirus Disease. Now, this is with messenger RNA vaccines can cause acute myopericarditis. So myocardium, the middle layer of the heart, pericardium, pericardium the uh, outer layer of the heart. And itis on the end means inflammation of, because we know it can cause this high inflammation. Now, this is from the clinical 
infectious diseases. They describe it as major article, peer-reviewed, uh, published with the auspices of the Infectious Disease Society of America, HIV Medicine Association, Oxford University, and Oxford Academic Publishing. So, I mean, basically, what, what, what more do people want to start listening to this? It's just unbelievable that this is still being done. And, and, uh, and in my view, disgraceful. Now, let's get to the evidence, the background to this. Post-vaccination myocarditis and pericarditis reported after coronavirus mRNA vaccinations. And we also know that after the adenovirus vector vaccines, there's been this thrombosis, uh, thromboembolism problem. And I believe that some of these cases have got the same origin. That is the inadvertent intravascular administration because people aren't drawing back. Now, I'm going to give the evidence for it. So... Um, the effects of accidental intravenous injection of this vaccine on the heart is unknown. Direct quote from the authors of this uh, peer-reviewed published paper. Now, uh, this is study is done in mice. Now, to be fair, <laughs> okay, mice aren't ideal, but you couldn't very well do this in humans. You couldn't line a load of people up and give a load of people the injection intramuscular. You're checking it was intramuscular by drawing back first and rolling the sleeve up in another bunch of people and giving it into a, directly into a vein in the arm. That would be completely unethical to do in humans. I mean, a lot of people don't like doing it in mice, but this, this has been done in mice. So this is just new research published. So it's done in mice, comparing the difference between intramuscular and intravenous injection of vaccine. And they looked at clinical manifestations in the mice. Histopathological changes. Now, of course, Histo is the study of tissues. Pathology is the study of disease. So this is this is disease changes in the tissues. And they looked at that under microscopes and did lots of studies on that. They looked at tissue messenger RNA expression to see if the spike protein was being expressed in the tissues of the body when you don't want it to be. They looked at serum levels of cytokines and troponins are released by damaged heart muscle indicating heart damage. So they looked at that and they did it really well because they did some intravenous, some intramuscular with the vaccine, some intravenous, some uh, intramuscular with normal saline as a control. This is a very well conducted experiment. Now, what did they find out? Intravenous SARS coronavirus 2 mRNA vaccine administration induced grossly visible pathology in the heart. There you go. Now, if you want to look at this article, um, it's all there. You can download the PDF. It's completely free, which is good of the Clinical Infectious Diseases Journal to do this. And it shows you the actual pathological pictures of, of the, the, the organs from the mouse with the, um, with, with the microscope slides and all the immunostaining and all the, all the clever stuff they did. It's a really impressive piece of work. So, yes, giving mice SARS coronavirus 2 messenger RNA vaccines caused grossly visible pathology in the heart it did but only in the iv group they're the only group that developed the histopathological changes of myopericarditis in other words the myocardium became inflamed the pericardium became inflamed so the iv group developed these changes in the heart the intramuscular group didn't and of course here the intravenous group were given the intravenous injection quite deliberately but I'm saying that one in every few thousand could probably be given inadvertently, intravenously in the vaccination campaign that we currently have. And this really has to change. It's simply not good enough. How can governments be so blind and educators be so blind as to not see this? Here's the evidence. 
uh, there is evidence of cardiomyocyte. Now, the, the cardiomyocyte, so the actual muscle, myo is muscle. Site, of course, is cell. So the cardiomyocytes are the actual cells of the heart muscle itself, the, active, the actual contractile muscular cells of the myocardium. So the evidence was in there, and there was a de uh, de degeneration of, the, of those tissues. So there you go. That's what they saw. They saw it with a microscope. They saw it with their eyes. They saw it in all the tests. You know, the evidence is there. If it's given IV intramuscularly, no problem. No problem. They also found apoptosis of the myocardium. Now, apoptosis is a mechanism whereby cells actually commit suicide. And the cells die and you develop an area of uh, necrosis. You actually get dead cells. Necrosis with adjacent inflammatory cell um, infiltration. So the apoptosis caused the necrosis. That caused the inflammation and inflammatory cells infiltrated into that area. And as well as that, there was uh, calcific, that's calcium-based deposits, on the visceral pericardium. So that, that, the, 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 there's two parts of the pericardium. There's the visceral and the parietal. The visceral is the uh, inner part, the parietal part is the outer part of the pericardium. And there was calcium deposits. Now, what the calcium deposits usually mean is when a tissue is damaged, um, it can become calcified. So this indicates that there was damage to the pericardium, which then resulted in calcification. And of course, you don't want a calcified pericardium because the contractile heart is inside the pericardium. So the last thing you want is a rigid sort of bony almost pericardium, that would be a, a very bad thing that will cause a condition called constrictive pericarditis. So there you go, those changes are there in mice. If you gave the vaccine intravenously, they were there. If you gave the vaccine intramuscularly, they were not there. It really doesn't get any simpler than this. And evidence of coronary artery or other cardiac pathologies was absent. So this is not a disease of the coronary arteries, which is the common disease, the coronary artery atherosclerosis, which is the common furring up disease of the arteries, was not present. Spike antigen was recognised by immune staining, occasionally found in infiltrated immune cells of the heart. So the actual pattern of the spike protein was seen in the immune cells and the spike protein had actually been expressed by the cardiomyocytes I'll do that bit first, by the cardiomyocytes. So what this means is because the vaccine was given intravenously, the RNA to make the spike protein went into the blood. It got into the myocardial cells. The spike protein RNA went into the myocardial cells. The myocardial cells produced the spike protein, expressed that to their cell surface. And of course, that's a foreign protein. So the body's immune cells said, oh, foreign protein there, and they attacked it and they attacked the cell, and that's what caused the inflammation of the myo myocytes in the myocardium. All this should be happening and just giving you a bit of a sore arm, not, not a sore heart. If it's given in the muscle, if it's giving intravenously, it goes to the heart, and as we'll see in a minute, it goes to the liver as well. And it was also in the intracardiac vascular endothelial cells. So what you have in the heart, you have various blood vessels, of course. So imagine that's a bit of a coronary artery there. That's going to divide into smaller branches. And, and the, all these blood vessels are lined with the vascular endothelium to make it nice and smooth for the blood to go through. So what, what this is, is saying that, that there was a inflammation of the intracardiac vascular endothelial cells of these blood vessels. So because there's damage to these blood vessels, that gives the inside of these blood vessels, that gives rise to the possibility of blood clots forming in there as well. And I didn't say that, but that gives rise to that possibility. But anyway, you don't want it to be inflamed. 
The histological changes of myopericarditis after the first IV priming dose persisted for two weeks. So there was for two weeks, they found evidence in the mice that they examined um, that this damage was there two weeks after the first priming dose, but were markedly aggravated by the uh, by a second intramuscular or IV dose. So if the, in other words, if the first dose was given IV inadvertently, even if the second dose was given correctly, that still aggravated the condition. And of course, this is exactly what we are seeing. There is more myopericarditis after the booster dose than after the first dose. It is exactly what we're seeing, and this has been exactly duplicated in this study. We need to change the policy. Numerous inflammatory cytokines, cytokines, cytokines found in cardiac tissue. The cytokines are the, uh, the, the uh, messengers, cyto is cell, kinos, kinds movement. So these are chemicals that communicate between cells and generate inflammation. So there's one called interleukin, one beta, which, which causes inflammation, another one called interferon beta, another one called interleukin-6, and another one called tumor necrosis factor alpha. Now, they're all released by the cells, and they all cause, they all lead to inflammation. And you don't want an inflamed heart. But this was in the intravenous group, not in the intramuscular group. This is only if this was given intravenously. Compatible with the presence of myopericarditis in the intravenous group, just to spell it out, they said it twice. And they also saw ballooning enlargement uh, degeneration of hepatocytes. Now, hepatocytes are in the liver. Um, now, we don't know of liver problems caused in humans, but it was noticed in the mice, so it could happen in humans as well. And also found in the IV group, not in the intramuscular group. All other organs appeared to be normal, which, of course, is exactly what we are seeing in humans um, after the mRNA vaccines. This is exactly what we're seeing. So what conclusions did they draw from this paper? This is in vivo evidence, in life evidence, that inadvertent intravenous injection of COVID-19 messenger ribonucleic acid vaccine may induce myopericarditis. There you go. I mean, <laughs> it can't be any clearer. Brief, brief withdrawal of syringe plunges to exclude blood aspiration may be one possible way to reduce such risk. Direct quote from the authors. Both Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna have clearly stated that their vaccine should only be given via the intramuscular route, not the intravenous route. So why on earth are we not ensuring that the manufacturer's recommendations are obeyed? And it's done according to the manufacturer's guidelines rather than giving the occasional intravenous injection by mistake. It's just completely unacceptable. Current CDC and WHO guidelines no longer recommend precautionary measures during the intramuscular vaccine administration. And I could add that the Green Book in the UK doesn't recommend it either. <laughs> I'm not making this up. This is the CDC, the WHO, and, and, and the Green Book, the official government bodies that control vaccination in the United Kingdom are saying, don't do your injections properly. Don't aspirate. They actually say, don't aspirate. It's unbelievable. This is just beyond my ability to comprehend, I'm afraid. Uh, direct quote from the article, the CDC Pink Book 2020, the WHO 2, 
2015 position paper have recommended against aspiration prior to vaccination so as to minimize pain is there a rationale for that i think that is completely utterly wrong now this um article also said that of course we're giving the vaccine into the um into the deltoid muscle up here but from the deltoid muscle into the the lymphatics under the uh, the axillary lymph nodes there the, the pretty direct communication from there whereas if you give it into the vastus lateralis muscle that's the um that, that's the the thigh muscle up there that, that, that into that thigh muscle and it's got to go through quite a lot of uh, quite a lot more lymphatics to get into the blood so they think that giving it into the vastus lateralis into, into the upper outer aspect of the thigh might be better they're not sure about that but they say they say it's uh, that's a possibility so worth considering uh, our study indicates that intravenous injection of the vaccine might uh, partly contribute to this clinical phenotype so they're being very cautious clinical phenotype means what's going wrong with the heart and the liver thus warranting a reconsideration of the practice of intramuscular injection without aspiration again they're putting this very clinically but that's a direct quote from the paper if it's in italics it's a direct quote which carries an inadvertent risk of intravenous injection so there we go case proved in mice and of course mice and mammals exactly the same as we are we really need to change this practice now in terms of the adenovirus vector vaccines the Janssen Johnson and Johnson the Oxford AstraZeneca we've looked at this in detail before but the same is true it should be given intramuscularly not intravenous now what we've looked at before from this paper uh, we looked at this in some detail um, about six weeks ago I think it was now but again it's all there download the PDF check it out for yourself make sure I'm not making it up thrombocytopenia so the thrombocytopenia of course you remember is the low levels of thrombocytes in the blood in mice reported in 2006 this has been noted in 2006 published in the journal blood all mice received via virus through a single tail vein injection. Thrombocytopenia has been consistently reported following the administration of adenoviral gene transfer vectors if it's intravenous. So in other words, the complications or some of the complications that we're seeing from the adenovirus vector vaccines in terms of thrombocytopenia and thrombosis could also be caused by inadvertent intravenous administration. Now I started this by saying, can you write to your MP or something? Because I've tried, and I'm just at my wit's end with this. I really don't know where to take it next. So I've got this letter. Um, th this letter here is from um, my, my MP. Uh, kindly, uh, kindly passed it on. Uh, dear John, writing back to me. Thank you for your correspondence, etc. Has passed it on to various people. And anyway, this letter ended up with uh, Nadim Sahawi, the the vaccine minister. That's where it ended up. Um, so. Um, and, uh, and and he basically says i've nothing to worry about um so here we go from the reports of major thrombosis and concurrent thrombocytopenia and th this was back in the day talking about the um th this is when i first wrote in about the adenovirus vector vaccines but we now know the same is true for the messenger rna vaccines we've not been able to identify any evidence of association with errors in administration in the uk cases well of course you're not because if you get it wrong you don't know because you stick the needle in, you inject it, and you pull the needle out, and you haven't got a clue. Let me say that again. You haven't got a clue whether it's gone into a muscle or a vein. So, of course, you don't know if you've got it wrong. It's not as if you say, oh, it's got that one wrong. Better go and report that. Oh, you would simply never know. So th 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 this is just poppycock, what, what Nadim Sahawi's uh, person has written here. It's, it's just... 
The very rare clotting condition reported following the administration of the University of Oxford vaccine is thought to be due to an immunological mechanism rather than the way in which the vaccine is given. That's their opinion. But um, they don't give any evidence for that. I think part of it's due to the intravenous administration. Guidelines published from Public Health England states there is no need to pull back on the plunger, aspirate before the plunger is depressed to release the vaccine into the muscle. Well, hopefully into the muscle, hopefully into the muscle, because there are no large blood vessels at the recommended injection site. Now, this just beggars credulity. Let, let, let me just tell, tell you what they've said here. Basically, they've said that this muscle, there's no blood vessels going to this muscle, it doesn't have a blood supply. Now, if you get an elastic band and tie it around your finger and cut off the blood supply, it will go red, it will go white, then red, then it will go mottled, then it will go uh, purple, then after a few days it will turn black and then it will drop off. It'll die, it's called necrosis. You know, the idea that, that a minister of the realm is writing to me say, saying that there's no significant blood vessels in a muscle, it's just, it's just unbelievable. A muscle is a living tissue, therefore it's got a good blood supply. I mean, why don't these people realise that? You understand this, and most of you aren't clinicians. You know, why don't they get this? It's just, um, don't want that one, that one, there we go. Right, uh, right anyway, the rest of it's just blur. But anyway, so basically, I'm, I'm not knocking the Dean Sahara, he's just a politician, but he should be advised, well, I, I am really, because we need more doctors and uh, scientists as, as, as politicians. I don't know what Mr. Sahari is before he was a politician. He might have been. I'm pretty sure he wasn't a doctor or a scientist. But there, there you go. People, uh, politicians that were doctors and scientists tend to understand this stuff. Um, but there's very few of them. So there we go. I understand it now. You understand it now. But our governments don't. If you can think of something to do, please do. Because, I mean... Why don't we do it properly? Right. Anything you can think of to uh, rectify the situation. The references are there in the description. If you know anyone in power, get them to change the policy. So we stick the needle in, draw back. If there's no blood, then we inject, keeping the needle in exactly the same position. So you stick it in, you hold it where it is. So the needle's not going forward or back. You aspirate. If there's no blood, then you inject it with the needle not going forward or back. And what I do is I just I, when, when I just I just stick I just stick the needle in like that. I'll, I'll stick it in, and then I'll, I'll hold my fingers just against the patient's skin to keep it in just the right position. And I've taught student nurses to do that using that exact technique for well over thirty years, and uh, well over thirty years. And uh, now the CDC, WHO, and Public Health England say you don't need to bother doing it. If you can think of anything, please do. Thank you for listening. She take and like the man just said himself. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Inside Four Walls. I know this episode's going out about eight forty today. I'm sorry about the delay. The one o'clock upload will be there with a hopefully five o'clock Let's Chat episode. That being said, thank you for spending your morning here with me on the Inside Four Walls podcast. I've been your host, James Madison, wishing you a great rest of your morning.